And uh, Lord, uh, we'll just thank you now and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Well, last time, you know, we uh, finished up the Thyatira, and uh, we come up uh, to the first part of the uh, first 500 years of the Dark Ages, and uh, we have seen really this, the Roman Catholic Church uh, at the pinnacle of world power, and uh, we come now to the point in history of about 1000 A.D., and this will be at the height of the Dark Ages. And this starts our, our fifth church period, which is Sardis. And uh, that picks it up in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And it says there, And under the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. I'll be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how that thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore uh, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Uh, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now this Sardis church period here will start about 1,000 and bring us up to uh, the beginning of the Reformation. Give your hand up. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, what's that thing you're talking about right there? It's talking about blotting his name out of the book of life. Well, could we wait till we get there? Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. Are you confused on your nights here? This is not Thursday, this is Tuesday. They both start with T, but they're different. Thank you for your interest. I mean, I, uh, oh, down in verse 5, okay. All right, now when we get to the shortest church period, like I said, we're gonna, this is going to bring us up to the beginning of the Reformation, about 1000 A.D. up to about 1500, and the word Sardis means red ones. And uh, you're going to find a lot of things developing here. So far in church history, we've traced the development of the two lines very well. We now have two clear Bibles, two clear churches, and two clear lines. And, uh, you know, we've talked about, uh, we've talked about different things about uh, uh, some of the guys that were really the, you know, the, the key guys here, but we really not delve into them. And when we get, maybe not tonight, but when we get into this church period a little bit farther on, we'll talk about that. And we'll get into some of these groups so you'll see exactly who they are. It's a tremendous study. Uh, this period here is the primary period that is covered in the book that so many of you read and we sell in a bookstore, Fox's Book of Martyrs. It basically covers this period of time uh, from about 1,000 up to about 1,500. It may have some on either side of it, but uh, most of them are in this time period. And uh, I think... Uh, one of the things you're going to see come out of tonight 
And this is really, to me, the real key of understanding church history. And when I tell you that you can't separate uh, the history of, of uh, church history from the Bible and God, you're going to see tonight exactly what I'm talking about. When I talk about that, you know, the Bible is such an easy book that in Genesis 1, before you go four verses, you know what the whole issue is going to be, light versus darkness, and light's going to be God, the darkness is going to be devil. When I show you back here... Uh, what we talked about in the gap concept where uh, Satan, you know, tried to overthrow uh, God and try to take that throne. And, and uh, I've told you how that Jerusalem has always been the, uh, the battleground all down through life uh, and all through history. And how that the Bible talks about in the book of Thessalonians, how the Antichrist is going to come back and he's going to sit on that throne in Jerusalem. That's what he wants. That's what the devil wants. I don't understand everything about what took place between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, but I do know this. Whatever the controversy was, it revolved around the devil losing the throne that he did have. And obviously the throne that he did have was in Jerusalem. And that's why he wants that throne back. He also wants it back because he knows that when Christ comes back, He's going to sit on that throne, and that throne was his back there in Genesis 1-1. So he doesn't want that. And uh, so he's doing everything he can. And in the tribulation period, he sits on that throne himself. And that's what we know as the abomination of desolations. All down through history and all, uh, and, and can, all up through the future, the issue is going to be about Jerusalem. And so with that in mind, it's during this period that we're going to study tonight what I think is probably one of the greatest studies in history to get it straight in your own mind because it just never is. Nothing you ever read about this is ever right. Uh, and that will be the study of the Crusades. And, um, and the Crusades have been commonly called a series of holy wars. And uh, it's because of the crusade, most people don't understand this, but it's because of the crusade that the Muslims hate Westerners uh, with such a hatred the way that they do. And um, they look at what the Roman Catholic did, did, church did during the crusades, and we'll talk about all of the things that happened. But they look at that and remember uh, what took place and, of course, uh, they, they don't make any distinction between Baptists and Catholics. They just look at what the Catholic Church did, and that was the Christians, and they just lump everybody together. So that's why they hate all Westerners, because of what happened during the Crusades. And uh, that's why when we started the war over there uh, back in the 90s, and then when Bush started the second war over in the Middle East, he made the fatal mistake, remember, of making a blurp in this one of his speeches and called it a crusade. You notice how that they shy away from that word and anything that we're doing in Iraq and Iran, and because of that is because of what the lingering memories are of the crusades that uh, they hate us for because of what happened during the crusades. And like I said, when you read about it in history, or even Christian history, or even secular history, they're called a series of holy wars. And uh, most of the guys that write that don't have any more sense about it than, uh, you know, anybody else in the world. Uh, it's no more a holy war than Hitler's attack on Poland and Great Britain in 1939-1940. I mean, it's, it was nothing holy about it. But from a Bible perspective on history, and that's what we're studying church history from a Bible standpoint, 
you need to understand how it is. I think the thing I want to give you more than anything else in coming through church history is an edge, an edge on history. I want to pull back the, you know, the uh, curtain and take you on the inside and show you how it really is, how you really see it. So it gives you a tremendous perspective. Most of you, you know, have a fairly probably concept of history. But when you have a biblical perspective of it, it just deepens and widens everything else you have because the Bible perspective is the insight on what's really going on because we know that the whole thing is God's plan. And um, from a Bible standpoint, the, the Crusades was nothing more than the Roman Catholic Pope, and it'll, it'll be Pope Urban I, uh, trying to steal and get dominion over a piece of land that t- up to this time uh, he wanted, but he couldn't get control over, and that was the land of Palestine. And the city he wanted was Jerusalem. And, of course, this is the whole background for, for what takes place in the Crusades. And it's nothing more that the, uh, uh, of the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope wanting to get that land, and in particular wanting Jerusalem, which simply paves the way for exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. You're going to find that when you study these Bible-believing groups, and we talked about a lot of the things they have in common, but they all knew who the Roman Catholic Church was. They all knew that she was the great whore, Revelation chapter 19. They all knew that the Pope was the Antichrist. I mean, that was very open preaching. They all knew that he was the Antichrist. Now, he's not the Antichrist, but they knew the association that he was, he was every pope on this planet is a forerunner and a type of the Antichrist because they do exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. These Bible-believing groups knew that. And uh, that's why the Roman Catholic Church hated them so much and persecuted them. And basically, the Roman Catholic Church has went back and rewritten all of history. Not just church history, <coughs> all of history. Uh, for the fact that they want to cover their tracks that uh, you can't find that. And so uh, this whole thing of this crusade is nothing but uh, showing you uh, one of the greatest things that you'll ever see about history. And we're going to shave it till the, we get a little farther into it. But you know what? There's only one thing you want to go out of here knowing tonight. And hopefully you'll get more than one. But I'll be satisfied with just this because this is a big piece of history. And what happened was about 500,000 maybe some estimates 800,000 to a million, dumb, stupid Roman Catholic kings, priests, vassals, peasants, knights, lords who basically let somebody else take care of their religion and let somebody teach them that through Origen and Augustine and Jerome that all the other pagan godless teachings, um, you know, were in the Old Testament, uh, were all allegorical, and uh, they, they interpreted the Bible for you. And they rejected what the Bible said about the restoration of the nation of Israel. Remember now, when Augustine wrote, <coughs> when Augustine wrote, he's the one who come up with the first concept of predestination. Remember, I told you that. Only his concept of predestination wasn't man is predestined to be saved or lost. It was that the Roman Catholic Church was the religion predestined to take on a place of the nation of Israel. So, When the Catholic Church believes that, and instead of Israel getting the kingdom, they start the doctrine of amillennialism or postmillennialism that says they bring in the kingdom of heaven, (coughs) what would be the next step? The next step would be they'd have to get Jerusalem. 
because that's how they're thinking, and that's exactly what they're doing, and this is what the whole plan is. Now, behind the scenes, here, here it is. Behind the scenes, we've seen this all down through church history, and I've explained it many, many times. We see the devil working through the Roman Catholic Church because he wants Jerusalem. So he's using the Roman Catholic popes and the Roman Catholic nations that he has now solidified into this Holy Mother Church, the mother of harlots, Revelation chapter 17 and 18. We now have come to the point where it is so focused that uh, they basically uh, are going after Jerusalem to fulfill their destiny as they see it. Uh, so what they do is they reject the restoration of the nation of Israel and uh, no less than 5,000 uh, 5, places in the Bible. And uh, they went on uh, with this religious fiasco to try to get, um, you know, the, the Holy Land, which the history calls the Crusades. And what they want to do is they want to make the, the Holy Land, Palestine, with Jerusalem in particular, a Roman Catholic Church state. At that point, they will be in position to fulfill their amillennial and postmillennial heresy by bringing in the kingdom themselves. That's what they want. You've got to understand that. I mean, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolute fact of history. And you, only the Bible lays that thing out. And, you know, you look at that thing, and, I mean, one little Bible doctrine about the missing the restoration of the nation of Israel. You know, that's not a little doctrine to miss. But just missing one doctrine like that uh, on the Jews cost over 800 to 900,000 young men. And then, you know, and somebody has to write today to tell you that Bible doctrine's not important. There's your buddy that you talked to this morning, you know. Uh, by the way, no tipping. We'll talk about it Sunday. Now, to understand the Crusades and the background that goes with it, we need to look at the beginning of our next great religion. And I've shown you how the religions have started because I think it's really important for you to know that. We looked at the first Roman Catholic Church split, which was the Greek Orthodox. Uh, we, we looked at how that thing worked uh, in time. We'll track them all for you. But to understand the Crusades, you've got to go back and look at the, uh, the beginning of another religion. And that would be the rise of Islam under Muhammad. And our time period for the birth of Muhammad in his life will be about 570 A.D. to about, uh, to about 632. And uh, he's from Mecca. And in the Muslim religion, he is the, uh, a direct descendant from, or he claims to be a direct descendant from Ishmael. Now, for those of you that are a little short on your Old Testament, again, let's go back and see how history, how the devil was coordinating events. The devil has a perspective much better of the future than anybody in this room. Probably everybody, maybe except the Lord. And, of course, the devil knew his long-range plan. So when God came to Abraham back there in Genesis and wanted to give him the promised seed and lay out the promised seed through him, the devil knew that this was a chance to, to, to give Israel uh, all the problems that he could and maybe hopefully wipe them out. So the devil intercedes, uh, and he intercedes, and Abraham takes Hagar, uh, Sarah's handmaid, 
and he produces Ishmael. And then some time later, you know, <clears throat> God brings the promised seed to, to Abraham, and he has Isaac. And we know that Isaac is in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that Isaac is the chosen seed. What, the, what, what uh, Muhammad did is he reversed the process, and he claimed that Ishmael was the promised seed. <coughs> so in their Bible, what they do is they go back in the Old Testament, and they change all of the passages that make uh, Isaac the promised seed, and they make Ishmael the promised seed. And it goes to show you that the devil was looking at this thing long before uh, anybody ever saw it. And we look back on it now with the whole Bible, and you can see how it fits all down through history. But uh, uh, the rise of Islam under Muhammad uh, and is, an, uh, is an incredible thing that takes place. And it comes out of Abraham's disobedience back there in Genesis chapter 16. And uh, he claims to be uh, a descendant of, of Ishmael. And uh, he, he gets visited by a 33-year-old angel of light, just like the one, that, probably the same one, that come to Joseph Smith. He had an angel come to him uh, when he's 40 years old. And he gets the sacred writings, which are called the Koran. Now, Joseph Smith got the, uh, the Book of Mormon. Say, they're all similar the way they all go. He goes through, Muhammad, goes through some trials with his new faith. Uh, but by the time he dies in 632, his religion had spread uh, through all Arabia, and his religion was called Islam, and the word uh, Islam means submission. And, of course, to their God, and their God is uh, Allah. Uh, the religion follows the very basic uh, outline. And, of course, one God, Allah, and his true prophet, Muhammad. What they basically do is create another god and another son. And uh, they basically take everything and counterfeit what the real one is. We know the Bible teaches that God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. Well, when they come on when theirs, and now remember now, they're a little late in history. They're 570 years after the death of Christ. So they really are of no count in anything, shape, or form. But who pays attention to that? They have to come up with a fake God, Allah, and they have to have a fake son, and that'll be his prophet, Muhammad. And, of course, they, they take out of the Old Testament things and put it in, and then they change a lot of things, too, because they've got to keep the, they've got to go back to Abraham. This is one thing that most people don't understand. Both the Jews and the Muslims claim as Abraham as their father, and that's a true statement. Because Abraham was the father of Ishmael, but he married an Egyptian, and that Egyptian was Hagar. And that's where he violated the promised principle of God because he was told not to do that. <coughs> and, of course, that's how the whole thing got off the track back there and got into problems. So they keep the Ten Commandments and other principles uh, that were given to Muhammad. And they have a whole list of things. In fact, if you ever spend any time... Uh, you know, reading the Koran and, or anything about it, it's got some of the most, you know, I, I don't think they had drug abuse back then, but if they didn't, he was on something because, boy, some of the stuff he writes in there is absolutely, uh, absolutely. in fact, if you really know it, you can really give a Muslim a tough time with it, you know, especially the drinking of camel urine. It's always a good uh, thing to hit them with.
But maybe that's why they all go down to the zoo so much. I don't know. But anyway. Uh, uh, he was commanded to practice goodwill and kindness to everybody except Christians and Jews. And obviously the Jews have all, and the, and the, and the uh, Ishmaelites have always had a problem. And if you go back in Genesis, you'll see where God gave Ishmael a chance to do what's right. But the chance of doing what right had to be the fact that he accepted the fact that he was not the chosen seed. And the devil wasn't going to let that happen. So that's where all the problems come in. Uh, they have the belief of a future life that you go when you die of seeing Allah, much like we believe in going to heaven. Uh, they recognize that Moses and Jesus are divinely inspired prophets, but they reject Christ as the Son of God. And basically what they do is they, they, take, the, uh, they take the aspect that uh, uh, Muhammad was a prophet, that Moses was a prophet. They got to have Moses in there because Moses was, you know, the key that brought the whole thing together after Abraham. Uh, but at the same time, they, they don't make Jesus Christ the Son of God. They accept him, but they accept him as just another prophet. Basically, what they say is this. When Abraham came out, you know, uh, God, God gave a line of series of prophets. And of course, after Abraham, the next big one would have been Moses. And then after Moses, uh, coming up through the Old Testament, you had the other prophets. But then the next big prophet would be Jesus Christ. And then you have a period of time up here for 500 years, and then the next big prophet is, um, you know, is Muhammad. So they, they, that's how they run the thing, and they put it in the line of the prophets. And uh, they, are, they, are, they, they pray three times a day uh, facing Mecca. Uh, on the Muslims, they have three basically uh, holy cities. Jerusalem, believe it or not, is the third holy place in Islam. And the first two were Mecca and then Medina. And the reason why Mecca is so important uh, is because Muhammad went from Mecca to Jerusalem uh, one night and then from that point went to heaven on a winged horse. So they put all these three cities together. And so Mecca is what they pray to. That's where, that's where he was born. He was born in Mecca, Muhammad. And so they looked at it as his birthplace. So three times a day, wherever they're at in this world, uh, they will, you know, they will, they will put a little carpet, a little prayer carpet down, and they'll get on their knees, and they'll face toward Mecca, which wherever they're at, they'll face toward Mecca. And, uh, you know, that's where they pray, pray to. They believe in polygamy. That's more than one wife. They believe in slavery. And they spread their faith by the sword. And they have no problem killing anybody that is not, uh, is not one of theirs. Um, they are all absolute, total disregard for any human rights or any, any life whatsoever. And um, there are six pillars of the Islam faith. They call it uh, six pillars. The first one is the creed of Islam. That's what they all follow. The second one would be their prayer five times a day. The third one will be Ramadan, and that's their fasting month. The fourth one will be their alms to the poor, so they give to the poor. The fifth one will be their annual pilgrimage to Mecca, which millions of them go. And the sixth one is what they call the jihad, which has become very popular here and since the Gulf War and uh, 9-11, and jihad is their holy war. And... Uh, 
The Quran has a line of prophets. It starts with Adam, believe it or not, runs up to Muhammad through Moses, Abraham, and then Christ is also in that line. They accept the Torah. That's the five books of the Bible, uh, Psalms and the Gospels, uh, but the Quran is their final authority. In other words, they do the same thing that, that everybody else does. You know, they accept the Bible, but then they have another book that supersedes the Bible because they can't find what they believe in the Bible, so they got to write something else to get along with it. And, of course, uh, they, uh, they hate Christians because of the Roman Catholic Church and the Crusades. We're going to talk about that here, uh, especially the third one, and we'll talk about that as we come through here. Uh, the, the passage on it in the Bible, if you want to mark it, would be Galatians chapter 4. And this is God's official statement on Muslims and, uh, and what's going on in the Middle East. And uh, he says here in Galatians chapter 4, I'll read it to you, verse 22, for it, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, that'd be Hagar and Ishmael, the other by a free woman, that would be Sarah and Isaac. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. He's clearly telling you there that the promise was in Isaac and not in, uh, not in uh, Ishmael. Which things are an allegory for these things, the two covenants, the one uh, from the Mount Sinai, which gendered to bondage, which is Agar, that'd be Hagar in the Old Testament. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answer to Jerusalem, which is now, <clears throat> and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, this would be New Jerusalem, is free, which is to the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry thou that travailest not, for the desolate hath many children, more children than she hath a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac, are the children of promise. Now what he's doing here is making the uh, the difference between the literal promise and the spiritual promises. What he's doing here is this, in Galatians, just so you know. What he's doing here, he's, can, he's talking about the old nature and the new nature. And the old nature is typified by Hagar and Ishmael. The new nature is typified by Abraham and Isaac. And where Abraham and Isaac were under the promise of the Old Testament, you and I in the new nature are under the promises of the New Testament, and that's what he's basically saying. But at the same time, he's making his official statement on uh, Islam, Muhammad, and uh, anybody who follows that. And he says, verse 29, uh, but as then he was born after the flesh, persecuted him that was born uh, after the spirit, even so it is now, making a reference to your old nature and your new nature. See what he's doing? Nevertheless, verse 30, here comes the historical point. Here comes his official proclamation on it. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? When all else fails, go to the Bible. And that's a great verse. Two of my favorite verses are, Nevertheless, what saith the Scriptures? And the other one is, You do greatly err not knowing the Scriptures. Nevertheless, what saith the Scriptures? Here it comes. God's official statement on, the, on, the, on Islam, Muslims, and everybody else wears a towel around their head. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall, uh, uh, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. And of course, uh, 
So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. It goes back to making a spiritual application to it. So you see that that's where, when Muhammad shows up, this is where the next major religion gets formed. And there's a plan for this. The Muslims are going to, just stepping ahead for a moment, the Muslims uh, are going to take all over the Middle East, everywhere, and uh, they're going to come to the point where they completely engulf uh, just about everything. And uh, about 1000 uh, A.D., they develop in what has been known in history as the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire, we'll study it when we get a little farther down there, the Ottoman Empire is the, is the Muslim Empire that basically runs all of the Middle East and much of Europe uh, for almost uh, 500 years. Um, and of course, they almost a thousand years, and they don't uh, they don't get disbanded till World War One, when uh, the Ottoman Turks picked the wrong side in World War One, and they side with the Axis, Germany and Italy, and of course, at the end of World War One, they get devastated, and, they, and the Ottoman Empire is over. But but uh, they were a very strong concept that came out of this thing. Now, after Muhammad's death. And you got to understand, this thing just didn't pick up and run. It had a lot of issues, and there was a lot of different factions, and I'm giving you the short version here. Um, but after Muhammad's death, uh, his followers enjoy many successful campaigns of conquest throughout all of Asia Minor and into Egypt, and uh, in many cases, almost going up into Europe. But they definitely have the Middle East. And here comes the problem. This is where it becomes a problem from a historical standpoint. I'm going to show you the real problem at the end or someplace in here. But this, from a history standpoint, here's the problem. During this time, there were many Catholics that made their annual pilgrimages to the Holy Land. And uh, they were going, uh, you know, Easter, Christmas, all their holy days. And uh, they were going down into Jerusalem by the hundreds of thousands throughout the year. And, uh, you know, to them, they were thinking that even though they didn't have direct ownership of it, got to understand their mindset now, they think that because they are God's church that this is their city. And during this time, when we've already seen the development of this, we talked about it, the worship of relics had really gotten to be a big deal. And, you know, pieces of, of, of the period of time when Christ uh, lived and walked this earth. And um, many Catholics were making their pilgrimage down there to the Holy Land. They were finding things that were, they thought were associated with Christ. And, uh, you know, all of this worshiping of relics had become part of the Roman Catholic Church and become very big during the start of the Dark Ages. Now we're at the high point of it. There were priests and popes and kings going to the Holy Land and uh, they were basically stripping the place of everything that they that they that they that they found that they thought had something to do with the uh, you know Charlemagne had already went there and, and built the big church of the Holy Sepulchre or on the on the place where he thought Christ was crucified and buried within the city, and it, it had been and that happened in uh, three or four hundred A.D. But they're going down there and uh, they they finding all kinds of stuff. They found Christ's baby teeth, you know. A little bit later on, they found his adult teeth. 
In fact, in, by 1500, there's 7,000 different teeth that belong to Christ. <laughs> it doesn't seem to bother anybody. That seems a little extreme. <clears throat> but they found John the Baptist's head. Uh, they found Mary's girdle. They found the finger of Thomas, which was put in the side of Christ. They found pieces of the cross that Christ was crucified on. They started showing up way back when. I told you before, by the time we get to 1500, man, you got enough pieces of the cross to build Fort Apache. I mean, you got, they're everywhere. They found one of John the Baptist's arms. Not sure if it was left one or the right one. They found a thorn from the original crown on Christ's head when he was crucified. They found the, the Lord's towel that he was wrapped in in John chapter 13. They found the head of James the Just. He's the one in Acts 12 that got beheaded by Herod. Oh, yeah, they found a tear that Christ shed in a jar. And believe it or not, and this is probably the best thing they found, some of Christ's original blood that was shed for you and for me. And uh, they're just stripping the place. And they're going down there like, uh, you know, your uninvited uh, mother-in-law when she comes for a vacation to your house. Just takes over. And uh, they were taking everything, and they were, they were ripping everything off, and they thought it was theirs. So you can see that when all this happens, the, the Arabs and the Turks start to put an end to the plunder. And uh, all these Christian pilgrimages to the Holy Land, and uh, many times uh, the Roman Catholic people are, are, are uh, you know, they're, um, they're assaulted. Uh, many times they're killed. And it was putting a real kink in everything, and, uh, you know, the Pope just couldn't have that happening. So, you know, he had to do something to stop the desecration of the holy things of God. So into the rescue comes uh, Pope Urban I, and uh, he calls for a council, and it'll be the, the Council of Clermont in 1095. Is that up on our board here? No, that was not up here. Uh, because that one was not a church council. It was a council to go to the crusade. But he calls the uh, uh, Claremont Council in 1095. And this is a rally for Christian liberty. And he gets up and gives a, an Adolf Hitler-type speech. If you've ever seen the old movies at the Nuremberg or the uh, places where he's got 50 billion people out there and he's getting up there ranting like a madman and they're all yelling Sig Heil and going crazy and, and having a great time. Uh, that's what it must have looked like. He gives one of them Nuremberg rally party speeches and promises that he will liberate the land of Palestine from the pagan unbelievers and then to make sure that he didn't have to go fight and raise an army himself, he promises all those who died in battle for the holy cause that they'll have immediate eternal life. Now, if you know anything about history, you can see we've already got a problem. We've already got a problem. Because the Muslims on the other side of the water, they've got some promises when they die in battle too. And their promises are a little bit better than the Roman Catholic popes. I mean, the Roman Catholic pope just gave them eternal life. But the Muslims, when they die in battle, they get 18 virgins and a drunken orgy. Needless to say, uh, morale is high with the troops. <laughs> it's... it's <laughs> So it was, uh, it was one of them things. I remember one time I, I watched the deal. I can't remember what it was. But there was a, 
a dialogue, a, a, a kind of a debate, but it wasn't really a debate between, uh, you know, some experts in, in Washington on, on the Middle East war and a couple of army guys uh, who were lieutenant colonels and colonels and who had been fighting probably from Vietnam all the way up. And they, you know, they were, they were battle-hardened guys. They, you know, you get living in a, an air-conditioned place at the Pentagon somewhere or in the White House, you know, and you've never been in the Army, never been in the military, and yet you think you're an expert in, in, uh, in uh, warfare when you've never been on a battlefield. And these old boys have been bloodied from Vietnam. Probably most of them were company commanders in Vietnam and, and, uh, and then come all the way up, stayed in, and was in the first Gulf War and the second Gulf War and everywhere in between. And uh, I'll never forget, they were talking back and forth, and you could tell that these old salts were pretty fed up with the Washington crowd who do nothing but yet profess to be experts. And um, one, of them, one, of the, one of the guys, somebody who was moderating it, you know, was talking, and the, the military guy didn't like what was being said because they didn't know what they were talking about. And uh, one of the moderators or one of the guys was overseeing that might have been a senator, he asked the... He asked, uh, he asked the, the army guy in his mind what, 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 would make an ex, what makes an expert in the Middle East, in, in Middle East warfare, I think is what he said. And the guy's answer was classic. He says, I'm not sure there are too many experts, but he says, in my book, an expert is somebody who can sneak up on a guy and run a knife in the back of his neck and get close enough to smell on his breath what he had for breakfast and live to tell about it is probably an expert in, in warfare in the Middle East. And the guys over there on the other side, they just looked at it. And their old big stick was this, and it reminds me of this. You know that when the Russians invaded Afghanistan, you know that most of the Afghanistans they fight, they fight with flintlock rifles. They don't have, they, they, they may at this point, but back when the Russians invaded them, they had flintlocks, like Davy Crockett used to have, you know, King of the Wild Frontier. They had one-shot flintlock rifles. They had spears. The Russians came in with T-34 tanks and AK-47s and did everything in the world, and, and these, these, uh, um, these Afghanistans kicked their rear end for about 10, 12 years, and they never did get the place. They had to leave. It was their Vietnam. And one of the guys in Washington said, he says, uh, what do you think? He says, these guys are a bunch of bush leaguers. He says, they still fight war with flintlock rifles and spears. And they laughed. And one of the army guy looked at him and said, you know what? What does that say about the, the tenacity of a man who knows all that we got with all the tanks and all the bombs, and yet he'll still go out and fight you with a spear and a flintlock rifle? I said, he says, maybe they know something we don't know. It always reminded me of this. You know, Pope Urban gave them eternal life, but they had a better deal, the Muslims did, and, and they, uh, they were not afraid to die. One time during the Crusades, I forget exactly who it was. We'll get to it in my notes here. One of the, one of the kings tried to bluff us away, and he couldn't win the, couldn't win the battle. So I, I think it was Al Barbies, I think it was. Maybe not, but I think it was Al Barbie. We'll get to it when we get here. But uh, this guy wanted to make a truce because he couldn't beat him. So he thought, well, compromise the better part of Valo. So he tries to go in and bluff Al Barbies. And Al Barbies was called, a, he was a one eyed guy. He was called a black one eyed panther. And uh, he was something else. And he's sitting up there in Jerusalem on, the, on, the, on his chair, or whatever, in his throne. And he's got guards all around him. And this. Uh, 
Roman guy or this uh, crusader guy comes in and he tries to bluff him. And he says, he says, we've got the place surrounded. And he says, uh, we, we're going to wipe you out. And he says, uh, we want to give you the freedom to try to make some kind of peace. You know, just trying to get more out of the deal and bluff it. Oh, I Barbie's said, you think you can whip us? And he said, yeah, we can whip you. He says, watch this. He said something to one of his guys who was his guards. He threw down his spear, threw down his shield, and ran at full speed and jumped out a 10-story window down to his death. And he looked at him and he says, will any of your guys do that for you? <laughs> and you're going to whip us? <laughs> uh, they didn't whip him. They didn't whip him. So the Crusades was kind of lopsided from the very beginning. And... Um, he says that everyone that was at this meeting was the elect of God. Here it comes. And while every Turk was a member of a cursed race. And he promised that the, just like Adolf Hitler did, remember? I mean, it's the same system. It's the same system. He promised that Jesus himself would lead the armies of the Holy War across the sea and the mountains. And he would give everyone involved in killing an incorruptible crown. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. Since Urban already had his crown, I guess he thought he didn't have to go, so he stayed home. But at the close of this message, thousands jumped up and down and screamed and yelled at the top of their lung, and it became the theme of the crusades for the Roman Catholic Church, God wills it. And they screamed, God wills it, God wills it, God wills it, God wills it. On the other side of the pond, the Muslims had their own little theme, and it was, it is the will of Allah. And the Crusades is nothing more than God wills it, running smack dab head on into it is the will of Allah. And boy, it was a, it was a bloody time. That always reminded me of in the old days in churches, uh, we used to have Sunday school campaigns. And we'd, uh, pastors would try to find any way they could to get people to come to church. They'd come up with all kinds of things. Friend day, you know, you've all been to them. You know, friend day, you know, Mother's Day. You know, Dad's Day, Father's Day, everything in the world. Everything to get a crowd. And uh, one of the things that they'd do is they, uh, they'd have Sunday school campaigns. And I remember years ago, we had a, we'd, we'd pick some church that we thought we could whip across the country, and we'd have a Sunday school campaign for 10 weeks. And whoever, you know, you'd have a goal where you had to have so many in attendance. And whoever won the Sunday school campaign, then that pastor had to, whoever lost, that pastor had to fly to this guy here and concede, you know, it was a goofy thing, but uh, it was all hype. Well, when they wore that out, I remember one time we had a, we had a Sunday school contest for eight weeks. It was called, uh, and I don't know who thought this up, but it was God versus the devil. And if you met your goal, God won. And if you didn't meet your goal, the devil won. And that 10-week course, the devil beat us eight Sundays out of 10. I mean, it was just that simple. And I've always thought of things like that, how stupid it was. And uh, the Crusades are on the way. Without a doubt, the Crusades are the biggest joke that ever hit the planet in the last 4,000 years. And history looks at it as one way, and the Bible looks at it another one. The first Crusade starts about 1095, was led by two men, Walter the Penniless and Peter the Hermit. And you hear these guys' names sometimes associated down in history, but you really don't know maybe much about them. But they were the first two leaders of the crusade. And these two groups, which uh, amounted to about 80,000 men, uh, which uh, uh, about uh, 65,000 were butchered and slaughtered uh, by the Turks. Uh, Walter the Penniless, 
uh, goes into Hungary and gets clobbered there. Uh, Peter the Hermit uh, goes into Constantinople, and he gets slaughtered there. In fact, the slaughter was so great that the Turks piles up the bodies into a giant pyramid. Uh, so, it, you know, the reinforcements show up under a guy by the name of Godfrey, God, Godfrey of Bullion and Robert Duke of Normandy and some others. They fared a little better than the advance party. They took Nicaea on 619-1097, and a year later they took Antioch. Oh, their ranks were depleted by death, famine, pestilence, and hunger. And just as they were ready to give up and quit, oh, God always comes through. A priest. They always sent priests along. Pope never went. Pope never went. But the priest, they'd send priests out. Priests, when things are all looking down and they're just not going to make it, the priest finds the Lance of Lorenz. And of course, for those of you who don't know what that is, shame on you, but that's the original spear that pierced the Lord's side when he was on the cross. And uh, they took heart because now they had uh, another relic to get them through. And from this shine, during the battle for Jerusalem on July 15, 1099, believe it or not, a UFO shows up right in the middle of battle. And there stands King George on top of a bright, shining little thing up there. And he's in full body armor, and he's standing on the Mount of Olives. And Jerusalem falls. And the acts that follow could only be carried out by a murdering bunch of Roman Catholic followers that you see it all down through history. This is why the Muslims hate us. It was the very first crusade. When Jerusalem fell the first time and they got the upper edge, they slaughtered everybody in that place. They slaughtered the women, the children, the men. They decapitated them. They threw the children up and caught them on their spears. They disemboweled them. They threw the women off the city walls. Blood ran ankle deep in the streets. Pope Urban died two weeks after the fall of Jerusalem, and so he didn't get to move into the temple of God, like the Bible says that uh, the Antichrist is going to do. Uh, but it was, uh, it was a bloodbath. And this to this day is what the, when they think of the Crusades, the Muslims think of what the Roman Catholic Church did uh, when uh, they took Jerusalem at this first crusade. And boy, they just butchered them by the hundreds of thousands. I mean, it was an absolute bloodbath. And it was almost in a rage that they went through and just butchered and killed everybody they could. So Godfrey becomes king at Jerusalem. And he is succeeded by a guy by the name of Baldwin at 1100 to 1118. And they set up a Roman Latin kingdom uh, is put into effect as the occupation forces come over and the crusades build castles and all the over Palestine to help bring in the kingdom. That's what they're going to try to do. And uh, But around uh, 1138 to 1193, another great Arab shows up. His name is Saladin. And boy, he was something else. Saladin shows up and he unites the Muslim against the foreign armies of occupation. He battles Guy of Lucerne at uh, Hayate on the hill above the Tibris River. And there Saladin whips the crusaders in an humiliating defeat. Uh, for the holy warriors are carrying the true cross of Christ, they found someplace along the line at their forefront. And boy, for you to have the real cross of Christ and uh, everything that uh, you, you could ever have. I mean, who could ever stand before the cross of Christ? Well, Saladin found a way to do it because he whipped them. And I'm saying all that, and I'm, I'm kind of uh, being deceased about it, because when we get done with the Crusades, you're going to see that one of the things that 
God used to break the back of the Roman Catholic Church and bring about the Reformation was the failure of the Crusades. Because people came back and they were disillusioned. The Pope had made all of these promises. And none of those promises came true. I mean, the Pope promised them that uh, the, the sea would split like it did in Moses' day, and it didn't. He would promise them that they would have great victories, and they got slaughtered. Up to this point, the Roman Catholic Church had told their people by keeping them in darkness that this was the greatest life on planet Earth, and it was a life of totalitarian bondage. But the Roman Catholic Church made all the people believe that this was the greatest life that you could ever have, and everybody else there was barbarian and starving to death. Well, when they got in the Crusades and they went to the other places, they saw that wasn't true. They saw silk for the very first time. They saw inventions that they had no idea was there. And they realized that that wasn't true that their world was very oppressive and the other world that was out there, that they had been lied to, that it was a world unlike they had ever seen. And they, they got disillusioned by it. They got disillusioned by it. And, uh, but the Muslims retake Jerusalem in 1187, but with one notable difference. This time there's no butchering of innocent Christian women and children. It seems that Allah, the God of Saladin, evidently has more self-control than the bloody God of the Catholic popes. And uh, if you ever get a chance to see the movie, and probably most of you have, uh, we went to see it together when it came out. It's been out for several years now. It's the movie called The Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of God is built around this crusade right here, the second crusade. And you'll see in that uh, many of the things that I'm talking to you about and it's a good movie. It's a good, pretty much historically accurate movie. And it's got, you know, the guy to play Salad and does a good job. And uh, they, they fight this. But it makes specific reference to the fact that when they take Jerusalem back, they don't do what the Roman Catholic Church did when they, when they took it. It's, it's, it's quite an impressive movie. And that was the, I'm sorry, that was the first crusade. It, it went in a couple of stages. The second crusade was led by two kings, Conrad III and Louis VII, both of France. And thousands of Catholics in Germany and France were signed up for this second venture, but the group never really made it to Jerusalem to help out famine and fever. Enemy attacks along the way whittled it down before they got there, and so they attacked Damascus instead and Edessa. They took neither, and it was pretty much a total flop. The third crusade, uh, 1187, was a crusade to get Jerusalem back from Saladin. Now, this is the one that most of us can relate to. It was almost, again, a complete total failure, despite the glamorization of it in literature and art for nearly 10 centuries. And the leaders this time were Frederick Barbarossa, uh, Philip Augustus, and probably the name that most people rep understand and realize and associate with uh, in all of, uh, all of the Crusades would be Richard the Lionhearted or Richard I of England. They never took Jerusalem, and uh, they wound up uh, signing a treaty with uh, Saladin to protect the pilgrims. But without a doubt, the most notable character of the time was Richard the Lionhearted. 
And uh, if you, uh, you know, if you uh, know about uh, Robin Hood, uh, one, uh, the, probably the greatest rendition of Robin Hood that fits into a historical perspective uh, would be the one that Kevin Costner played in here they did a number of years ago. And, uh, but you'll notice that in, in both cases, um, the whole concept of Robin Hood is, uh, takes place in England, Sherwood Forest, real place, Nottingham, real place. And uh, Richard has, his, Richard has uh, uh, been held captive now. Um, he went to the Crusades. So while he's away, you know, the, his brother and those, uh, you know, Sheriff of Nottingham and all the rest of them, they take over the kingdom and put hard bondage on the people. Robin Hood, obviously, fictitious character, but Robin Hood comes to the rescue, and we know how the story goes. He takes from the rich and gives to the poor and becomes the great hero. But at the end of the movie, you know, they're, they're holding the kingdom. They're holding the kingdom for Richard. And when Richard the Lionhearted comes back at the end of the movie, you know, then he rewards uh, Robin Hood and all of his merry men. And, uh, and, of course, that's how the movie goes. If you remember the opening scene, that when he's, he himself was in the Crusades, and he was taken captive. And if you remember the opening scenes, and this is, it's very true to what was going on, they were basically, so they could never fight again, they were slopping off their arms. And uh, that's how he got out. The guy had a chain and he pulled his arms and a guy with a big old crooked sword, you know, was slashing them off. And in the last second, he pulled on his chain and cut the guy's hands off. And him and the, and the, uh, the uh, Muslim guy then got away and then went back to England. So that's all during this time period. And most of the stuff you hear, uh, it's, in the, you know, it's centered around that third crusade. Richard Lionhearted was probably one of the greatest warriors the world has ever seen. He was kind of, I read a, I read a, a biography or somebody else wrote it about him, but it, it, was, a, it was a great work. Uh, I've always liked to study great military leaders and, and try to get in their head and see how they were. He was an incredible guy. Sometimes he was moody, sometimes he was very plodding, and even rather stupid at times. Uh, but uh, on the battlefield, he was the most fearless man alive. And one account tells the story of how he was in a pitched battle, fighting his way through the, uh, the main uh, battle to get to the coast. And when he gets to the coast, he finds out that he's left half his men trapped uh, back in the confusion of battle. So what does he do? He turns around and he fights his way all the way back through, uh, you know, and, and rescues the trapped men to get him out. He had two horses shot out from under him. And the middle, uh, you know, he goes uh, to the place where he's swinging a battle axe, uh, lopping off arms, heads, and cutting torsos in half. And finally, uh, he gets to the point where Saladin's men are so afraid of him. And he's the only guy in all of the crusades that Saladin ever feared. And, uh, you know, story goes that, that, you know, how they lined up in the old days where one army was over here and the other army was over here, and then they'd go at it with each other. Well... Saladin's troops were so afraid of Richard the Lionhearted that one day he rode up and down the ranks in the middle for two hours, taunting them, 20,000 troops on the other side, for one man to come out and fight him, and nobody would do it. That's how they feared him. Story goes that Saladin's nephew 
said to Saladin, let me take him on, uncle, to which Saladin replied, keep your saddle, you fool. <laughs> and the troops all around laughed at him because Richard I, the lion-hearted, wasn't called a lion-hearted for nothing. Uh, too bad he, he wasn't, on a, it wasn't a warrior for God instead of the Roman Catholic Church. But, you know, you see a lot of people like that. You know, I, I've down through history in my personal readings and personal studies, I, I found some of the greatest guys you ever met in your life that had courage to do incredible things. And yet I thought to myself, what a, what a blow they could have struck for Christ if they just would have gotten saved. And, I mean, history's filled with them, just filled with them. Richard the Lionheart is just one of the long list. Uh, when we got married, I went, my hero growing up and to this day is for an unsaved man is, is a little guy by the name of Audie Murphy. And uh, I actually uh, had an autograph of him that he did after the war when he was traveling around seeing things, whatever. You know, he became a movie star afterwards. And Audie Murphy, uh, when he went into the military, was probably... Oh, I don't know. He probably, he looked like he was 14 when he went in. He went in barely underage. And the paratroopers rejected him. The Marines rejected him. But the uh, Army finally took him. They tried to get him out of a non-combat unit because he was so little. But he wouldn't go. And uh, he wound up being the most decorated soldier in World War II. I think he won every medal you could get. And the last thing that he won was the Congressional Medal of Honor over there in France in about 1944 when a whole column of German tanks ambushed his patrol and, and about 250 Germans, and they were going to get wiped out, and Audie sent everybody to the rear, and he stayed on the burning Sherman tank with a 50 caliber machine gun and called in artillery fire on the panzers while he was holding off the 250 German with a machine gun, wounded three times, got off the tank, and, and uh, started to walk back, and two seconds after he was off the tank, the tank exploded, and one of the most incredible guys. I mean, he got every battlefield. He went in as a private, come out as a lieutenant. He got every battlefield commission he could get. He became a movie star afterwards. And uh, I read his life story because he made a movie. And the movie was called, well, he made a lot of movies, but he made a movie about his wartime excerpts and it's called The Hell and Back. One of the greatest war movies you'll ever watch. And I read his biography years after, after and uh, he talks about how that, reliving that. He had a lot of nightmares about that. A couple of his best friends died in his arms, and it was really a tough time for him. And he became an alcoholic, and he got into movies and made a lot of westerns. He was a little scrappy guy. He got in fights with everybody. And uh, he got killed in a plane crash about 19... I want to say 69, maybe 70. Well, anyway, he's buried in Arlington National Cemetery. And one of the goals, when on our honeymoon, we went to Washington, D.C., and we went to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and right down to the left of it is Audie Murphy's little gravestone, and, you know, I wanted to go see that. But it's people like that. I look at that people in history, and I think to myself, you know what? If they just could have given what they've given, you know, you, know, you, read, you read guys who jump on hand grenades, you know, and give their lives for others. I read it with Private Johnson in Vietnam who, who threw himself on a hand grenade and, and got himself killed to save five of his guys. And he was a private first class in the Marine Corps in 1965, I think it was. A private first class in 1965 made $36 a month. The guy jumped on a grenade and killed himself to save his buddy, and he was getting paid $36 a month for it. I look at something like that, and I think to myself, you can't get God's people to walk across the street to do something for God. But 
It's a wild thing, a wild thing. Old, old Richard the Lionhearted was a great soldier, great soldier. Only man that could ever make Saladin uh, lose faith in front of his troops. The Fourth Crusade, 1200 to 1204. This time Constantinople was captured. But this time, instead of setting up a Roman throne, they would overthrow uh, what was left of the Greek Orthodox Church and make Constantinople into a Latin Roman, kind of like a satellite nation or city. Although Constantinople was the second choice to Jerusalem when uh, Allah uh, is winning, you take whatever you can get. And uh, they, they trying to, Roman Catholics are trying to show somebody that they're, they're getting some progress done, but they're not. And as the Romans go back to Rome again, they take more of the relics with them and they just plunder the whole place. And, uh, you know, everything that they, they take, you know. The Fifth Crusade, 1212, probably the most tragic uh, of all the Crusades because this one was the Children's Crusade. King Philip of France was at St. Denis when a 12-year-old shepherd boy had a vision. And again, these kids having visions. That was the thing that set up Our Lady of Fatima in 1914 in Portugal with those little kids. It caused World War I, World War II, and Vietnam, and every war in between. When you understand it, if you want to read about it, get that book back there, Why Vietnam, Why Did We Go? It'll tell you the whole story. And uh, But um, this 12-year-old boy, shepherd boy, had a vision. And uh, the vision was that Christ had appeared to him and told him to gather all the ch children of Europe. And uh, what the men couldn't do, God was going to deliver Jerusalem through the children. And they were to go to fight for the Holy Mother Church. The king tells the boy to go home, but the boy has a letter from God which says that the sea will part when they, he and the children get to the coast and go to the saved Jerusalem. And when Pope Innocent the third saw the letter and heard the vision. Uh, he took that little kid and forty to fifty thousand other children all over Europe, and he sent them on their way. Many of them died on the way. When they got to the coast of the sea, it did not open. It did not part for them. Two unscrupulous men offered to take them to Palestine on seven ships. They collected the children and promptly sold uh, sold them into slavery to the Mohammedans. And uh, when faced with the disaster of about fifty to 70,000 angry ca Catholic parents and wanting to know why the youth rally was a flop, and uh, Pope Innocent blamed it on a heretical group that uh, said that uh, had forged the letters that, uh, uh, that gave to these kids and then had conspired with the people that sold them into slavery. And so the ire was turned from the Catholic Church to this heretical group and they got the blame for it, and that group was a Bible-believing group called the Albigensians. And so the Roman Catholic Church raised up a crusade to go and slaughter them. That's how it works. That's how it works. That's typical, buddy. And if anybody remembers back in about 1969, 1970, when uh, you know Pope John went to Auschwitz and Treblinka, and every pope sometime in his place goes to either Poland, where Auschwitz is, or Treblinka is also in Poland, and some of those concentration camps, and they lay a wreath at the thing down there, you know, and pretend like they're really caring about it, when the bottom line is it was the Roman Catholic Church that was behind the whole concept of Adolf Hitler getting into power, 
And uh, those Catholics knew exactly what was going on in those concentration camps because they were Jews. They didn't care. And, uh, you know, after the war, it was the Roman Catholic Church. It was in the Kansas City Star not five or six years ago. It was the, everybody wanted to know how that uh, Joseph Mengele and Klaus Barbie and all of the, all of the uh, Nazi war criminals got out of Germany and got into South America. And, of course, they got into South America and come to found out that they were all smuggled through a Roman Catholic monastery in southern Germany and Austria and sent there with forged papers dressed as priests and sent down into there, and that's how they escaped. But nobody cares about that. Nobody cares about that. The Sixth Crusade was led by Frederick II. He's joined by William of Holland. And uh, he decided that discretion was the better part of valor. So he made a deal with the Muslims and split up Jerusalem and set himself up as king, March 19, 1229. But Pope Gregory IX never did appreciate anybody on the throne in Jerusalem unless it was him. So he excommunicated Freddie, and uh, off we go into another mess and another problem. The Seventh and Eighth Crusades were total flops. They were run by Louis, the Fran Louis of France the Ninth, and he meets Barbaeus. That's the one-eyed uh, killer called the Black Panther. As the Crusades headed back uh, in defeat, the Black Panthers tore up the churches, raped the women on the altars, and burned the books and Bibles and the crosses of the Roman Catholic Church. And that pretty much brings it to the end of the Crusades. Some guys count them uh, as many as 10 or 12 when you break down all the little subparts. But basically, in history, you get eight Crusades. And I've given them to you. Uh, in that, in the way that history usually breaks them down. But basically, the crusade is simply God wills it, runs smack into it is the will of Allah. And, uh, you know, it's the way it works. So that, the, the, the crusade ends, and, but this time, as you look back, we've got a, we've got a clear, clear two lines. I told you that we would have true biblical people, and now we do. And we have anti-biblical people. They both have their churches. They both have their Bibles. Our date now is around 1250. And that puts us right up here on the other side of the, uh, of the high point and in the Sardis. And uh, we've got the thing where this thing has come up now. And uh, we've seen the two lines clearly, clearly defined. And the line down here is all the Roman Catholic Church. Line up there is the Bible-believing group. And uh, the thing is very clearly, we have two churches. We have two types of Christians. We have two Bibles. Everything now is clearly defined in history when you come through the Bible. We're now seeing where all the churches start from. We now understand where the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox came from. We now understand where the Muslims come from. We understand where the Catholic Church came from. And one by one, as we come down through history, you're seeing how this thing, uh, this thing all comes together. And uh, we've seen the biblical line and the anti-biblical line. The popes have tried to take everything they could, kill anybody who got in their way. Uh, but for the first time, they have been stopped. And that brings us to a great concept that I want you to, uh, uh, to, to understand. Most people don't think about this. We live in a world where everything the devil does, he tries to mask exactly what, 
is the real truth. We've talked about it many, many times. And we live in a world today where, where everybody misses the, the whole concept of, of what reality is. It's very clear that God uses the things of this world uh, to perfect his praise. And uh, the Muslim nations were used of God to keep the Roman Catholic Church out of the Holy Land. And readers of the Bible get a great insight to things in history that the world and the uninformed reader never picks up. Coming through history and the Bible, uh, you know, clearly pulls aside all the smoke screens of what we worry about and really shows us what is really going on. And, you know, when you stop and think about it, What was the big deal about whether, from God's standpoint, what was the big deal if the Muslims got it or the Roman Catholic Church got it? They're both Satan's groups. What was the big deal? Why did, the de- why did God use the Mohammedans to keep the Roman Catholic Church out? Why did God even care which one got Jerusalem, because they're both of the devil. Why was God more satisfied to have the Muslims keep Jerusalem than the Roman Catholic Church to keep Jerusalem? Yeah, see, when you look at that through history without a Bible, you don't, you don't even see those things. Most Christians who have a Bible don't even see those things. You know what it tells you? It tells me? It tells me that the greatest threat on this planet is the Roman Catholic Church. It tells me that God was willing to let his city fall into the hands of the Muslims rather than fall into the hands of Satan's church. You see, it points it out very clearly that there may be a lot of false religions. We know that, we know that uh, the Babylon mystery is the mother of harlots. We know that everything comes out of the Roman Catholic Church. We know that. But what you've got to see here is the fact is this. God did not want Satan's church. He was satisfied for the Muslims to have it. But he would never let Satan's church get that land because that land is reversed for somebody else. And it shows you and me that the greatest threat on this planet, the greatest, the greatest threat on this planet is not communism. It isn't all the little conspiracy theories. I know we're all afraid about the Muslims and they're trying to set off bombs in New York and 9-11 and all of that stuff. And that, I'm telling you, I'm, I mean, it may, that all may be real stuff and it is real stuff, but I'm telling you, there's something out there that is a lot bigger than that. And it's looming behind all of this. And what the devil does is he uses everything to mask what the real thing is. He always done that down through history. He always has. And of course, it's never been the Muslims. It never has been communism. It never has been uh, the Muslims. It never was nuclear war. The greatest threat to this planet is Satan's church. And God detested it so much that he was allowing the willing for his own city. He was willing to let the Muslims have it, but he did everything to keep that church out of it because he knows how bad the devil wants it. The devil wasn't sad. Ah, here's another thing. The devil, does not the devil run the Muslims? Absolutely. Are they not his group? Absolutely. They're his people, and they're his group. But they're not his church. His church is the Roman Catholic Church. And the devil, say, how do you know that? Because the devil wasn't satisfied. 
if the devil wanted Jerusalem, why wasn't he satisfied when the, when the Muslims had it? Now, folks, when you understand it behind the scenes, that there's light versus darkness, and the devil always runs the world through nations. We learned that. We're in the times of the Gentiles. And in the times of the Gentiles, the devil runs the world through religion and nations. If he's always wanted Jerusalem, and he has, if he had that as his throne back there, and he did, and he had everything the way he wanted it, and he's trying to get it, and he did, then why was not he satisfied? Why was not he satisfied when the Muslims had it? Because the Muslims, his religion, just like it is everybody else. Why was he not satisfied to there? Because he won't be satisfied till his church has it. He won't be satisfied till he sits down and gets put in there by his church. The mother of harlots, Babylon, Mr. Religion. As bad as the Muslims may be, as satanic as they are, they're not Babylon, mystery religion, the mother of harlots. That is one church. And we saw it develop as we come through the early parts here of the church history. We saw where Satan's synagogue of Satan, and then we saw where it got solidified, and it became Satan's seat. And now it's Satan's church. Wow, what a concept. What a concept to understand that God was not going to allow the Roman Catholic Church to hold Jerusalem as their piece of ground. The devil wanted it so badly, and that's why in the tribulation period in the book of 2 Thessalonians, where he sits down in the temple of God and he shows himself that he is God, the devil finally gets it then, but he gets it then through the Roman Catholic Church. He wasn't satisfied to get it through the Muslims. He won't be satisfied to get it through the Jehovah Witnesses. He won't be satisfied to get it through the Mormons. They are rinky-dink religions that are, aren't even on the Richter scale of the devil's real main cause. His main sphere of operation is his church, and his church has their own Bible. His church has their own church. They have their own, they have their own religion. They have everything unto themselves. And that's why he will not be satisfied until he sits down in Jerusalem with his church in charge. Yeah. Okay, so you're talking about the Catholic Church and about how, you know, if they obtained Jerusalem, that that would be like the worst thing ever because God didn't allow it, kind of sort of thing. So we assume that that would be the worst thing ever because God did not allow it to happen. He let the Muslims have it. In other words, he used the Muslims from keeping them to get it. Yeah. Basically. Correct. Well, it has to do with it down the line. The Roman Catholic Church, my point being is, the thing that has always been down through history, and including the history of America, was the Roman Catholic Church. When JFK is in office, every political leader in our government is Roman Catholic. When we come to the 1950s and the 1960s, you had what they called McCarthyism. Joseph McCarthy was a southern senator who was trying to rid all of the communists out of everything in America. And of course, Joseph McCarthy was a Roman Catholic, and he was part of the whole overall Roman Catholic concept to rid the world of communism because of what had happened back in Fatima, Portugal, back in 1914, 
when those three little kids had a vision, and the vision was that, that Europe was going to be eradicated of communism and Roman Catholic Church was going to be the world religion. So from that point on, the Pope put into process any way he could, aligning himself with whatever nation that would fight against the communists, hence World War I, hence World War II, hence Vietnam. And of course, while all that is going on in the early late 50s and the early 60s, everybody in our government, from the head of the CIA, which is Alan Dulles, to the Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal, right up to the head of NATO, Mark Clark, and everybody in any position in our government is Roman Catholic. The strings are being pulled by a guy uh, in New York who's called the Pope of New York, and his name is, uh, ah, I know it like I know my own, Cardinal Spellman. And he's the guy who, who runs the whole thing over here from the, from, from the Pope over in Rome. And the final thing was that we wanted to get into Vietnam. We wanted to get into Vietnam because Vietnam was a uh, country that the communists were taking over, and so we wanted to stop them. So what happened? The CIA, being run by, by uh, Dallas, his son uh, is a Jesuit priest, uh, Alan Dallas, head of the CIA, wants to do two things. He wants to throw, overthrow uh, the communists, Cuba, and he wants to keep the communists out of South Vietnam, taking over South Vietnam. That's Jeff Davis. That, I'm coming your way. Hang, hang on, I'm coming your way. Now, um, I'm not done yet. Let me finish my story here so I don't lose my train of thought. I'm going to let you sit with William here. <laughs> so what happens is this. They get everything set up, and uh, the CIA goes in and dumps the, uh, the president of South Vietnam, and they set up a guy by the name of Diem. Diem was a Roman Catholic trained in Georgetown University by the Jesuits at the Jesuit school. The CIA, being run by the Roman Catholics, went in, assassinated or downthrowed the guy that was in there. I can't think of his name. It was a Vietnam name. Yuck, duck, duck, or something like that. They threw him out, put Diem in, and then Diem come to the point where immediately as a Roman Catholic, he started persecuting all the Hindus in, in Vietnam, and that's why they were pouring gas on themselves and burning themselves because he was making it a Roman Catholic Church state under the CIA thing to fight communism. They needed America because France had went bankrupt. France is Roman Catholic. She fought the Vietnam War before we got there, and she couldn't handle it, even though we were paying for it back then. So what happens is we go in in Vietnam, and we start to commit ourselves to Vietnam through the Roman Catholic influence of putting it in. The only thing that's lacking in this country is a Roman Catholic president. So then the election takes place. JFK comes in. And so now everybody thinks that it's going to be a piece of cake from this way in because now we've got a Roman Catholic president. So behind his back, Alan Dulles and the CIA and all of their spooks, they put the whole concept together and try to bay a pigs to overthrow Roman Catholic or communism uh, Castro in Cuba. And that's where we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. That was a flop. He didn't even know about it. Kennedy didn't. And when he finally found out it was already underway, he refuses to give, he refuses to give uh, permission for the Navy to go in to support the Cubans who are fighting on the beach, and so they get all taken prisoner and they're slaughtered and the Bay of Pigs goes belly up. And of course, uh, the CIA, as everybody in the government that was Roman Catholic, hated Kennedy for that defeat right there. At the same time, we had invested 50,000 or 30,000 troops in Vietnam. 
Kennedy's famous last speech that he gave before he was assassinated. He'd signed, he signed a presidential directive that was going to pull the troops out of Vietnam. His last message he ever gave ended something like this. At the end of the day, it's their war, they have to fight it. And he was going to bring the troops home, and he signed a presidential directive on that day to bring the troops home. A week later, he goes to Dallas, and he's assassinated. Twenty minutes after he's assassinated, as soon as Lyndon Johnson gets sworn in on Air Force One flying back, the first thing he does is rescind that presidential order, and he sends 50,000 more troops into Vietnam, and we're there for the next 15 years at the loss of 50,000 boys, all to keep the Roman Catholic Church's Fatima, Portugal vision in play. Yes. Yep. Yeah, it all goes the same way. Another question is, um, so we can assume that when the Antichrist comes back, it's going to definitely, this is probably obvious, it's going to definitely be connected to the Roman Catholic Yes, yes. So, the, so, so somehow, some way, somebody in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, be it, be it the Pope or the, uh, or the Cardinals that are there in Rome, somebody's going to introduce this person. Somebody's going to introduce the Antichrist in the heart of the Catholic Church, right? Something like that, yeah. There's another whole series how that'll happen. I got it all down. I know how it's going to happen. I just can't tell you without killing you. Let me tell you something. Yeah, so I can't kill you now because then they'll know for sure. I'm not as smart as some people. Anyway, if you ever get a chance to buy this guy's books, I don't care what book it is, buy it. They're out of print and they're really expensive now. The last one I saw on eBay was like $85. I have them all. I tried to get double copies of them all, and most of them I do. His name is Avril Manhattan. Don't ask me how to spell it. His name is Avril Manhattan. Manhattan like New York City. Avril like... Avril. Avril. He, without a doubt, in the 20th century, was the greatest... Mind, he's dead now, the greatest mind on the Roman Catholic Church. He's the one that wrote uh, the book Vatican Billions. He's the one that wrote the connection between Vietnam, why did we go? He's the one that wrote, he probably wrote 20 or some books on the Vatican alliance with the United Nations. And it's, I don't know how the guy, he died of a natural cause. I don't know how they didn't kill him long before. I mean, this, I have never seen anybody who had the goods and the facts on the Roman Catholic Church in every aspect better than he did. And anytime you can find his books, they're long out of print, but anytime you can find one and you can buy one, buy it. I, we, you know, they're hard to find. I mean, and they're expensive when you find them. But that's what it is. The next week, next time we get together, we're going to, you know, we've dibbled dabbled around this, but now we're going to stop and we're going to come back and I'm going to show you every Bible-believing group that it comes up through this time period. And you'll get a sense of your roots. And I'm going to show you why we are a Baptist church. And, uh, you know, and we're going to look at those next time. Um, out of the Crusades or during the Crusades, one last thing, comes a couple of different Catholic groups that out of this period that are very important. You need to know who they are. Uh, they're basically three military order groups. 
And um, the first one would be the Knights of St. John. They would be from France. The second group would be the Knight Templars, and they would be from Alsace-Lorraine. That's France, uh, uh, northern France. And then you have a group called the Teutonic Knights, and that'll be from Germany. These groups were uh, courted by the popes. They were made rich by the kings, and they were idolized by the people. And the pope used them, uh, gave them great favors and great thing. And they're kind of like paramilitary groups who had great power and great wealth, and they organized great armies. And the pope used them. Uh, and then, of course, uh, when they became of no value or they became too powerful, then he had them wiped out. Now, I say all that to say this. So you know, the modern-day great-grandson of these groups are all found in one, a couple of basic groups today. And that will be, first and foremost, the Knights of Columbus. They start about 1900 and come up to the present day. And the Knights of Columbus are the modern version of the Templar Knights, the Teutonic Knights, and the SS, <laughs> 1933 to 45. And uh, they are a fifth-column subversive group in America that um, are very political. And these group, uh, uh, they basically, uh, they basically uh, develop up into a, a, a group that gets into political things. And they do a lot of good, but at the same time, they have underlying tones, and they're, they're basically a fifth-column group. And then out of that same group, and you find these today, too, will be what we call the Masons uh, and the uh, Shriners. Huh? No, they come out of the Teutonic Knights. If you go, to, if you're a Shriner, um, somebody was explaining this the other day to me, and he said that, uh, you know, you have to be a Mason first, then you become a Shriner. And I said, oh, yeah, that's when you get your little go-kart. <laughs> he didn't like that. <laughs> But the bottom line is, they come, if you go into the Masons and the Shriners, they take their heritage back to, uh, the Masons take their time back to the Teutonic Knights and the Templars. Uh, and of course, they don't see the connection of history in the Roman Catholic Church. You know, the Masons, uh, you know, they, 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 here again, they get a lot of, you know, if you saw the national treasure and all of that stuff, you know, they get a lot of hype about being a satanic group. And, um, you know, there again, all of that is a smokescreen. They're no more satanic than the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts or the Cub Scouts or anything else out there. Uh, but uh, they're, they're all used to mask the one true thing, and they all go back through Rome. And even though the Shriners today are an independent group and, um, and the Masons also, they're connected, they trace their origins back to the, uh, to the Teutonic Knights and the Knight Templars. And uh, then they trace it back to the Bible, uh, all the way back to uh, King Solomon and, uh, and what goes on back there. And of course, that's all bogus, but that's what they do with it. And uh, you'll find that they are set up, these, these, uh, these groups are set up uh, just like the knights back then. They had a grand master, uh, which headed up the individual group. So they, they are the modern day versions of that. But in essence, uh, the, everything comes out of the Roman Catholic Church during this period of time. That's what I want you to know. Yeah. Um, Dr. Chin, it's also like, so the, the men's version of Catholic Church is like the Knights of Columbus. And so there's also 
Yeah. Yeah. Ladies of Isabella. Right. So yeah. the, the daughters of Isabella. Yeah. Now, do you have you researched that at all? But they're all the same. They're they're all just groups that they're do-gooder groups. You know, I mean, the Shriners do a lot of good. I mean, they make a lot of hospitals for a lot of people. I'm not fighting it. I'm just telling you. I'm not arguing with them. I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you this is where they come from. I'm not saying they're a bad group. In fact, if anything, I'm defending them against all the idiots that say they're part of the Antichrist scheme and try to overthrow the world. That's all a smokescreen for the real group who's trying to overthrow the world, whose church now you know who that is, that was so important that, that God would let the Muslims have Jerusalem so the devil's church couldn't get it. That's what I'm talking about. All right, well, on my back of my car, you'll see a bumper sticker. I'm a Shriner. Stop me. I'll help. Go ahead. Um, just a point of clarification. Last week you gave uh, a couple names as true Bible believers um, that, were, that came out of Thyatira. Um, one was Peter the Hermit and the other was Boniface. Tonight you told us that Peter the Hermit was one of the guys that went with, uh, I forget his first name, but the penny list that headed up the first crusade. Is that a different guy or is that a... Now, Boniface, I see him on the chart. He's listed underneath the... Uh, yeah, Boniface is... Uh, he, he, was, he was a pope, right? Well, there was a Boniface that was a pope, and then there was a Boniface who was a Bible believer. Okay. I'll have to look up on the other guy. Uh, you read, you, you read I may, the penny list, but he's got them written up there that it's underneath the true line on that chart. Yeah, I see. I'll have to look. Let me look and see what that is before you put that in your deal. Uh, it may have been Peter Waldo I had in mind. Uh, there's so many names, I can't keep them all straight, but anyway. Next week, we'll start with the Bible-believing groups, and we'll come through every one of them, show you how they fit into all this, and give you a timeline on them, and, and we'll work it from there.